Let's take our Bibles and turn this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. You know, weekend and week out, we continue to mine the great depths of Scripture one verse at a time. And each time we discover yet another nugget of truth that causes us to praise our glorious God for his kindness and for his faithfulness. And I was looking the other day and um, I realized that we've been in Matthew since October 2002. October 2002. And we're almost two thirds of the way finished. I checked and realized that we have exposited thus far 583 verses. By the way, to exposit means to expound or to explain in a detailed manner. And, of course, expository preaching is, is doctrinal preaching. It is proclamation of the word of God that, that is derived from an exegetical process that is concerned only with the revelation of God. It's not concerned with your opinion or my opinion, but strictly what God has intended the text to say. And then, of course, to passionately apply those truths to one's life. And although this kind of preaching and teaching is very rare in contemporary evangelicalism, I believe, as well as the leaders of this church, and hopefully all of you, that this is the method that was exemplified in the Bible. And there's a number of verses we could go to to, uh, to validate that claim. But certainly, since we have a divine mandate to preach the word, all right, it's very simple, preach the word, Second Timothy 4 tells us, uh, we believe that God is has ordained this particular method of preaching. And frankly, saints cannot be equipped for godly service and godly living apart from precise theology. That's why we are very careful to go through the text verse by verse and apply it to our lives. So joyfully. I hope it's as joyful for you as it is for me. We are back in Matthew. And by the way, as we've looked at these 583 texts so far, there have been literally hundreds of other verses that we've looked at and hundreds of other topics. And so now we come back to it. And I find it interesting as we look at Matthew's gospel and all of this is by by way of, of a kind of preface of what I want to share with you this morning. The purpose of Matthew's gospel is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the long awaited king and Messiah of Israel, that he is the sovereign king of heaven and of earth. And yet I'm struck with the fact that in no other gospel will you find such a stunning emphasis on his rejection. You can go back and in the beginning of Matthew's gospel and you can see Herod's attempt to kill baby Jesus right from the beginning. You see it in the rejection in their flight to Egypt. You see all of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish his Jewish countrymen trying to kill him constantly. And Matthew's gospel deliberately, I believe, shocks our senses with the inconceivable blindness of those who somehow refuse to believe the obvious about who he is. And it's fascinating that his divinely inspired account portrays Christ's rejection in the most startling ways, and more so than any other of the Gospels. 
It's interesting that, for example, in his account of the crucifixion, he mentions nothing about any loved ones or friends at the foot of the cross. In his account, there's no thief that repents. In fact, in his account of his death, even God the Father forsakes him as he endures his wrath for the sake of those who believe. Yet even in the midst of such pathos and such tragedy and such grief, Matthew also portrays the Lord Jesus Christ as the triumphant king that is going to someday return on the clouds of heaven with power and and great glory. And so such a glorious outcome makes our current studies a bit more tolerable, does it not? As we constantly see him harassed and harangued and as we are constantly dumbfounded at the level of animosity that continues to build leading all the way up to the cross. But what is fascinating is as we continue to excavate the text before us, we find many other very practical, shall we say, sub themes that we can apply to our lives here on earth as we await his return. And so today's text is a prime example of this as we look at the issue of our citizenship on earth. Now, before we read the text, let me give you the context a bit. Jesus now is in his last six months of public ministry, and most of his time now is going to be spent with the disciples. He is teaching them, preparing them for a life of faith when he is gone. And he is now reminding them on a frequent basis that he's soon going to suffer, he's soon going to die and be raised from the dead. But he's also constantly helping them understand through object lessons how important it is to have a godly character and a godly conduct as kingdom citizens that remain on earth until he returns. And so very, very practical information that we glean from the historical narrative here in Matthew chapter 17. Let's look at the text this morning. It begins in verse 22. Matthew 17 and verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying from strangers, Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook. And take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Living in this world is a constant source of frustration for Christians. Because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. We read that all through the New Testament. 
And of course, those without Christ have a very different worldview than we do. Romans chapter three, beginning in verse 11, says that there is none who seeks for God and all have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And as we live out our lives, we constantly see this in the world around us. Paul even admonishes us not to be like them in Philippians three, beginning in verse 18. He says they are enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And there is perhaps no better way to witness the depravity of man than in our government and in other governments around the world. I was thinking about this, did a little bit of research. Of course, we're always frustrated with the frivolous spending that we read about in our government. And according to CNN's Money Magazine, they say that tax time happily coincides with the annual Congressional Pig Book. Maybe you've seen that. It's an interesting book. They said that it's re- released earlier this month by the nonprofit, nonpartisan organization called Citizens Against Government Waste. And there, of course, you can find some of the most questionable expenditures that have been very subtly worked into this year's budget. You can read things like a $25,000 grant to the Clark County School District in Nevada for curriculum development to study mariachi music. That's kind of the the Mexican music that you hear. I call it Mexican polka because it kind of sounds like that to me. But all right, twenty five thousand dollars for that. The um, the Citizens Against Government Waste also lifts six point three million for a wood utilization research project. One point seven million for the International Fertilizer Development Association. It goes on and it compiled in the uh, what they call the pork's fattest year. The um, Citizens Against Government Waste compiled twenty seven point three billion dollars in what it deems wasteful spending for 2005, which, by the way, is up 19 percent from last year's total of twenty two point nine billion. According to uh, the the, um, Citizens Against Government Waste, there has there was more pork this year than in any other with Congress stuffing. 13,997 supposedly frivolous projects in 13 appropriation bills. And this is up 31% from last year. I read a few of them. They call them the pig book oinkers. Let let me give them to you. These are some of the ones just from last year. $3 million for the first T program in St. Augustine, Florida. That's T-double-E, by the way. $2.25 million in various Shakespeare-related funding. Boy, that's helpful to know. $538,000 for the National Wild Turkey Federation in Edgefield, South Carolina. That also is a real comfort to my heart. $6.8 million in YMCA funding. $15 million for overseas dairy development programs. $200,000 for the rock and roll Hall of Fame and 100,000 for the kids rock free educational program. I'm sure all of you parents will want to participate in that. 50 million for the indoor rainforest in Coralville, Iowa. In case you didn't catch that, 50 million. 225,000 to rehabilitate the Deer Park Pool in Sparks, Nevada, which They say Representative Gibbons clogged with tadpoles in the 1950s and on it goes. 
Folks, what are we supposed to do? Well, there's a growing trend in our country, and we saw this a lot when we lived in California. And at times when I'm out in some of the remote parts of the West doing some of the things I enjoy doing, uh, I run across these folks. And these are the people called the sovereign citizen. Maybe you've heard about that. Recently, uh, the Anti-Defamation League wrote the following, and I quote, The Sovereign Citizen Movement is a loosely organized collection of groups and individuals who have adopted a right-wing anarchist ideology originating in the theories of a group called the Posse Comitatus in the 1970s. It goes on to describe that the the adherence to uh, this whole sovereign citizen uh, movement believe that virtually all existing government in the United States is illegitimate and they seek to, quote, restore an idealized minimalist government that never, never actually existed. To this end, sovereign citizens wage war against the government and other forms of authority using, quote, paper terrorism, harassment and intimidation tactics and occasionally resorting to violence. I'll give you an example. In April 1992, an angry resident of Michigan wrote a letter to the Michigan Department of Natural Resources stating that he is no longer, quote, a citizen of the corrupt political corporate state of Michigan and the United States of America, end quote, and that he was only answerable to the, quote, common laws. He therefore expressly revoked his signature on any of his hunting and fishing licenses which he viewed as contracts that fraudulently bound him to the illegitimate government of Michigan. That obscure hunter would, three years later, become known to the entire world. He was Terry Nichols, friend friend and accomplice of Oklahoma City Federal Building bomber Timothy McVeigh. And, of course, we just had the anniversary of all of that. According to the Anti-Defamation League, they go on to say, and I quote, Nichols subscribed to an unusual right-wing anti-government ideology whose adherents have in recent years increasingly plagued public officials, law enforcement officers, and private citizens with a variety of tactics designed to attack the government and other forms of authority. Its members call themselves variously constitutionalists, freemen, Preamble citizens, common law citizens, and non-foreign, non-resident aliens. But most commonly, they refer to themselves as sovereign citizens. Now, what's interesting is that these movements are growing very rapidly in our country. And unfortunately, some of them like to link themselves to Christianity in some bizarre way. Well, of course, the vast majority of people are not that radical. But many people are very frustrated. So what do we do? Do we stop paying taxes? Do we cheat on our income tax? It's interesting. So many of the false teachers out there today, you can look on almost any of the critiques of the teachers that are out, some of the big names, and you'll find that they're under investigation for tax evasion. Is that what we're to do? Or should we go ahead and pay our taxes, but complain bitterly and loudly? Because after all, we're not obligated to government. We're citizens of another kingdom. Plus, we need to be 
a good steward of the Lord's money, right? We shouldn't, you know, give money to all that silly pork. And and maybe what we need to do is campaign for a Christian America. You know, if we can just vote in enough Republicans, we'll just moralize the whole country and we'll live happily ever after. Well, Jesus answers these types of issues in this text before us today, a very practical passage of Scripture. And I've divided it for you into three sections that I hope will help you grasp what our Lord is saying. We'll see, first of all, the solemn preparation. Secondly, we'll see the sacred premise. And thirdly, the supernatural provision. First of all, the solemn preparation. Folks, remember, Jesus has just glorified himself in the transfiguration where he peeled back his flesh and he revealed his glorious Shekinah to Peter, James and John. And now he has descended with them back down into the valley of despair, as we learned last week with the demon possessed boy and the disciples as they were struggling with their deficient faith, unable to to free this young boy from the demon that was afflicting him. And so in verse 22 here of this text, we read, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. In fact, Mark's gospel in Mark 932 says that the disciples did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. Now. Jesus is about to teach them another very important lesson. But before he does, he's reminding them again of the reality of what is about to happen. This is a solemn preparation. He is about to die. He's six months out from the cross. He is about to leave them. They would soon witness the inconceivable brutality of the Jews and of the Romans. And all of the rejection that they had seen thus far would uh, would soon pale into absolute insignificance in comparison. So knowing this, Jesus must instruct them on how to respond to this wicked, corrupt authority. And I was reminded as I thought about this, the Lord has also has already in, in Matthew reminded them of some very practical things. Let me just kind of run through a list to to refresh your memory. He has already instructed them concerning marriage and divorce, loving their enemies, charitable deeds. He's instructed them about prayer, the proper standard for judging others. He's instructed them about the broad and narrow way. In other words, how to enter into the kingdom, the dangers of self-deception, the heinousness of hypocrisy, the demands of discipleship. He's taught them about the power of faith and the importance of forgiveness He's given them instructions on how to conduct themselves in ministry. He's given them many teachings concerning what they would encounter in evangelism. He's explained to them how to spot wheat versus tares in the church. And he's talked with them about the revelation concerning the church and his second coming in glory. But now he is going to give them even more instruction about their responsibility, our responsibility To wicked governments, knowing that this would be hard for them as it continues to be for us some 2000 years later. So here they are. They're back at headquarters, so to speak, in Capernaum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. This, of of course, was Peter's uh, home. 
And they were probably staying at, at least some of them in Peter's residence. And all of a sudden, the Jewish IRS comes knocking. These were the Jewish authorities who had been granted power by the Romans to collect a yearly temple tax for the maintenance and the operation of the temple. And in verse 24, we read, when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, by the way, two drachmas would be equivalent to two days wages for most people of that day. And since there was no such thing as a two drachma coin, Jesus and Peter would later pay with a stater, which was valued at four drachmas, which would have been the appropriate amount, two for each man. Now, this particular tax had to be paid by Passover, but the collectors were sent out early, kind of a month or so early, sometimes several months early to begin to get the process going. Now, friends, these funds were terribly misused. These people were at the temple were greedy. They were hypocritical. They were the false teachers of Israel. In fact, the Lord called them a den of thieves. We would say in our Tennessee vernacular that they were as crooked as a dog's hind leg. And here they come wanting money to support them. Now, even the other taxes that Jesus and the disciples paid to Rome were used to finance every imaginable form of wicked debauchery and idolatry. And the pagan rulers of that day and, and their political cronies were every bit as evil as Saddam Hussein or any of the other men that you can think of over time. Nothing has really changed even today. So the collector now comes to Peter and asks for the tax. They probably assume that due to Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah and all of that silly stuff from their perspective, that he would not consider himself to be any, any, under any obligation to pay. And likewise, his disciples. But we see something very different here. And here we move from the solemn preparation to the sacred premise. That is the sacred, the holy argument as to how and why we are to submit to authority. And even when it is even when it is obviously wicked. Verse 25. Peter immediately, without hesitation, answers this uh, tax collector. Yes, uh, he, he will pay. We will pay. He, he knew that this was always Jesus response, whether it be to the Jews or to the Romans. And he says, and, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Isn't this interesting? Obviously, the omniscient and loving Savior knew what had transpired and wanting now to teach Peter and all of us. He says to him, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? Now, by the way, customs were taxes that were levied against various goods or various properties and poll taxes were levied against individuals. Well, the answer was obvious. Obvious to Peter, obvious to everyone. You know, the, the authorities always collect from strangers. They don't collect it from their own families. Everyone knew that ancient rulers would, would never tax their own families. In fact, some governments wouldn't even tax their own citizens, but rather exact tribute from other nations that they had conquered. But never from family. Well, Peter understood this, and therefore he answers in verse 26 that they 
Get them from strangers. To which Jesus then reinforces the obvious saying, consequently, the sons are exempt. Now, what is he saying here? What is Jesus driving at? Is he saying that that, that since he being the absolute monarch and, and sovereign king over all of the universe, and since Peter being one of his his uh, subjects and part of his spiritual family by adoption, that, that somehow they are exempt? Not at all. Now, folks, this is this is a fascinating line of reasoning when you really think about it. Think with me for a moment. Here we have Jesus, the Messiah King, who was symbolized throughout the Old Testament in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. He even called it his father's house. And all of the sacrifices were a picture of his glorious ransom when he would come someday to pay for sin. In fact, his Shekinah, the brilliant light of his presence, hovered over the mercy seat. And under the mercy seat, the Hilasterion, the place of propitiation, underneath that in the Ark of the Covenant, laid his law that had been violated. And so the presence of God is hovering between the cherubim over the mercy seat. And the only way man could anyway come into his presence is through the shedding of blood. All of that symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he is being asked to pay tax for this tabernacle, this temple. There stood the Lord of the temple, whom John called greater than the temple. I mean, folks, think of the irony here. Here is the Lamb of God that has healed virtually everyone for miles around. Beloved, there was no one more deserving of immunity from such a taxation than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one. Yet in his humiliation, he divests himself of, of his royal robes and humbles himself as, as a bond slave. And he makes himself in the likeness of men and he willingly pays the temple tax. Isn't that amazing? Verse 27, he says, but lest we give them offense. Go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Dear friends, this is staggering condescension. The Lord of the temple paying a tax, in essence, for himself. Now, here's the premise. Jesus wanted to clearly establish the fact that as the only sovereign king of heaven and of earth, as the Lord of the temple, he was under absolutely no obligation to pay any tax whatsoever. Any more than any other earthly monarch would pay a tax himself. Likewise, Peter, as an adopted spiritual son, was under no obligation. But folks, his point is that there is a bigger issue here. There is a bigger spiritual issue that must be considered. You see, the eternal souls of men and women is at stake. Therefore, nothing should ever be done to hinder the gospel message. Nothing in our character nor in our conduct should ever give offense. Nor should we do anything to cause others to sin by example. 
The Apostle Paul, for example, reminds us of this in First Corinthians 10 and verse 23. He says that all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He goes on to say that not all things edify. And then later in verse 32, he says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. You see, many of these unregenerate people who were following after Jesus, most of them thrill seekers, didn't understand really who Jesus was. And they would have been profoundly offended. If he somehow refused to pay the tax, all that's going to do is muddy the water, so to speak, when it comes to giving the gospel to them. And they would have considered them to be irreverent blasphemers and traitors if they did not support the temple and therefore lose perhaps any possibility of reaching them had Jesus decided not to pay the tax. You know, Peter understood this later on in first Peter two. In verse 13, he reminds us that believers, as believers, we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, it says. Submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Friends, Scripture is very clear. God himself has instituted government. And we are to submit to it, even when it is evil. In Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. I mean, you can't make it any, any more clear. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And then he goes on to describe how government has been divinely established for our protection in order to maintain the rule of law. And in verse four, he says, for it is a minister of God to you for good. And then later on in verses five through seven, he says, wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Dear friends, God has spoken through his word. We, even as believers, are obligated to willingly submit to human law even when at times it makes no sense to us. Well, people will say, but no, wait a minute. What if they are all evil and what if they misuse the funds? You do it anyway. Let God worry about that. Peter reminds us of this very principle when he admonished slaves, for example, to be submissive to their masters, even at times when they are cruel. First Peter two, beginning in verse 18, he says, To obey them with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, God sees this. He will use this somehow for our good and his glory. Now, of course, there are people that are going to be evil in our government. that are going to misuse funds. They're unregenerate, most of them. 
They do not have the mind of Christ. As I read earlier, Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, they're enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Folks, these people need the Lord. But you're not going to be able to present the gospel to them if you kind of haughtily say, you know what? I'm above all of this and I refuse to pay those taxes. I refuse to submit to the government. So we do it for the Lord's sake. By the way, the same principle applies to a wife, for example, who loves her unbelieving husband and wants desperately to see him come to Christ. If a wife is in a situation like that, what's she to do? Nag him to death? Be rebellious and mean-spirited? No, she is to willingly submit to him for the Lord's sake. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the same way... You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, I know immediately there arises a chorus of protest from those who resent the concept of submission and resent the idea of of somehow bowing before any kind of authority, especially one that they would think is cruel, whether it be governments, employers, or a spouse for that matter. Now, folks, obviously there are limits within the divine economy. I mean, whenever we are asked to violate a law or uh, even a civil law or certainly God's law or a principle that's issued by God, we must obey God, not man. You have to understand that. I mean, you can look back through the Bible and see all kinds of examples of this. I mean, young Joseph, for example, refused to comply with the immoral demands of Potiphar's wife, who was uh, in authority over him. Uh, We read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. We can see the the example of, of Peter and John, for example, when they came to Jerusalem and the Jewish authorities demanded that they stop preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter 4, in the beginning of verse 19, they said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. I mean, there is a place where we defy the government when they ask us to somehow violate something that God has clearly told us to do. Many of the early saints were greatly persecuted because they refused to burn incense to Caesar and to bow down and to worship him. So obviously there are limits to submission. But friends, our example is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Our precious Savior who submitted to unbelievable abuse at the hands of the Romans and and of the Jewish authorities. And even at that, on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There's our example. So the sacred premise is simply this. If King Jesus submitted to the sinful authority of man, so must we. But notice finally the supernatural provision This is such a wonderful thing. I remember this again when I was a little boy. These little stories just continue to to crop up in my mind from when I was a young lad. In verse 27, he tells Peter, I want you to go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Folks, here's another object lesson that the Lord wanted to use to further buttress 
the, the premise that he was under no obligation to pay. Yet he did so in order to not give offense and ultimately win souls. Here it is. Think of this. Miraculously now, the Lord of hosts, the one who will willingly pay tribute to evil men, not only speaks the necessary coin into existence, but he demonstrates his power over all of creation by placing that coin in the mouth of a designated fish. Isn't that amazing? Then he summons that very fish out of all of the millions of fish in the sea to willingly bite an unbaited hook. Now, guys, how do you how do you like that? Wouldn't that be great? You go fishing, you throw the hook out there and the fish comes and bites it. Better yet, you pull out a coin. That would really be great. So the fish comes and bites an unbaited hook. And I think of this as an act of submission totally contrary to its nature. I mean, fish just don't do that. Unless the creator causes them to do that. And then the fish opens his mouth and gives up the prized coin. What an amazing thing. What an irrefutable demonstration of the majesty and glory of Christ. What an obvious indication that he indeed is the king of glory. And that requiring him to pay a temple tax is so ludicrous it begs language. And what a lesson for us all to see in this supernatural provision, the faithfulness and the power of God to effortlessly supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Oh, dear Christian, please hear me. Never will an obedient child be deprived of any provision necessary to glorify the king of glory. You see, his hand is not weak. His arm is not short. All that we need to magnify the majesty and excellency of Christ is instantly available to us by the power of his might. Christian friend, God has chosen us as instruments of righteousness for his sake. And this includes being a responsible, law abiding, tax paying citizen. Even if there's a lot of pork that we're supporting that we wish we didn't have to support. Even though our citizenship is in heaven. And indeed, we can and we should rejoice in the fact that, according to 1 Peter 2, 9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You see, we're not even citizens of this place, but we're going to pay the tax. We're going to be a lawful citizen just as Jesus did. Why? We do it for the Lord's sake, because there's a bigger issue here, and that is to see men and women come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter goes on to say that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But friends, as undeserving recipients of his mercy. It's interesting that Peter goes on to remind us in that particular text of both our civil and our spiritual duties. In verses 11 and 12, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage against the soul. By the way, if I can stop for a second, sometimes these fleshly lusts would include a desire not to pay our taxes because after all, we would rather spend it on ourselves. 
And it's easy to justify that because we don't want to pay it to them because they're going to misuse the funds. Right. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And he goes on and says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In other words, the unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Because, friends, there is a day when the Lord is going to visit again, when he's coming again. So may I challenge all of us to be good citizens, pay our taxes. Of course, we can vote and we can uh, you know, express our opinions at the ballot box. This is a democracy. We can try to choose leaders that will that will honor the Lord and honor his words. But we also need to know that there will be very few of them. And it's most important that we see the need to change people's hearts, not just change laws. This idea of of coming along and moralizing America is a very dangerous thing because all it does is fuel the self-righteousness that is already existent in so many people. Cause them to think that since they're such a good person, now they're worthy of God's blessing when in fact they are still sinners and they need to cry out for the mercy that God will give them through Christ Jesus. So let's make this our goal to be like Jesus, to give no offense as citizens. Okay, give no offense. Do it for the Lord's sake. That others will see our humility and love and be drawn to the Savior. And I close with this thought. Oh, that all my life would be a shining light of dignity, a life of love and sacrifice devoted to humility. Though evil men abound in shame and use in vain his holy name, may I be known by friend and foe as one whose life his grace proclaimed. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for just the practical nature of this text we pray that you will help us to see the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ and to emulate that in our lives. Lord, may we be good citizens and may others, especially those that do not know you as Savior, look at us and say, those people are good citizens. They can be trusted. And then for them to be able to ask the question, my, how can they humble themselves to such wickedness, knowing their convictions? And Lord, would that you would use that to draw them to a saving knowledge of yourself. Thank you for meeting with us. Speak to each and every heart this day and especially speak to that person that might be within the sound of my voice. That has never come to the foot of the cross, never repented of their sins. Lord, I pray that you will bring conviction to them. I pray that they will be able to look beyond the, the superficial kind of American veneer of religiosity that is so prevalent in our culture and look into the heart and to their hearts and say, Lord, I really don't know you. I have never really come to you and pleaded for mercy and grace. I see my need for the Savior. And today, Lord, I ask you to save me. Lord, I pray that that will be the prayer of their heart and that you will bring them to yourself by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. 
For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.